number 12. It's the 12th time that we've been walking in the pathway of Abraham. For those of you who don't know, if you have a Bible, if you haven't got a Bible, see me at the end. We can make sure you've got a Bible. But if you have got a Bible, take your Bible tonight and just have a skim through chapters 13 through to chapter 22. That's what we've been looking at, the events of this man, Abraham, who creates a a foundation, really, for the message of the Bible as it unfolds. God remarkably and incredibly intervenes in his life and begins again the process of revealing God himself to this world. I don't know what your thoughts are about what the message of the Bible is all about, but the core of the Bible is about God revealing himself to a world that has rebelled against him. The question is, how is God going to do that? The message of the Bible is how he does it through time, through history, little by little, bit by bit, revealing himself. Now, if you like, as we've been working through the life of this man Abraham, what we've been seeing is that God is progressively teaching us today in the 21st century lessons from a man who lived a few thousand years ago. A man who walked in the wilderness, a man who lived out in the desert in a tent, whose life was so different to our own lives here today. Uh, It's so remarkably different. The technology that we have couldn't have even been dreamt of for Abraham, and yet the Bible reveals that we can learn from him today precisely because this is God's revealing word to us, shaping us, giving us lessons that we bit by bit learn. I would describe chapter 22 as the final masterpiece, the final masterpiece in the life of Abraham. If you like, We've been journeying with this man from an oldish age right to an old man. We really don't find out much more about Abraham after chapter 22. We find that after his wife Sarah dies, he takes another wife, he has some more children, and then he dies. That's all that we find out about him. Now, if you're writing a story, if you want to create, if you like, the culmination, the climax of the story, you would place that at the end as a narrator and you would say, everything that has gone before is about building up to this masterpiece. And I would say that chapter 22 is undoubtedly that, the masterpiece. don't know whether you know there has been another masterpiece revealed during the past few weeks. The name of this masterpiece is Venus. Venus is the name of the yacht which was um, commissioned by Steve Jobs. He commissioned the yacht just about beyond a year before he died. And this yacht was finally launched at the end of October. It is incredible. 260 foot special aluminium. The, the windows in the hull of the ship, the windows in the hull of the ship are specially designed windows 10 foot high and 26 foot wide and designed with a special glass commissioned for this ship so that the glass itself can provide structure to the hull. It is the most astounding ship 
commissioned by a man. This is what Steve Jobs wrote in his autobiography about this boat. I know that it's possible I will die and leave Lorraine with the half-built boat. But I have to keep going on it. If I don't, it's an admission that I'm about to die. I thought, wow, that is incredibly powerful, isn't it? Here's a man who's looking and saying, I want to make a statement about me. I want to leave a legacy. It's possible that I might not even want, I might not even see this finish, but I want to leave a masterpiece, and it is a masterpiece. Recognizing in leaving a masterpiece, he was finite. He had a limited life. He knew that, but he was leaving something. Chapter 22, I would suggest, without Abraham Abraham even realizing it, (laughs) is a masterpiece that he has left for the whole of time for us to see. Something of incredible legacy. And yet, we see it as a story in an old book. Let's have a look at what actually happens Chapter 22, right at the very beginning, we read that God does something which seems a little strange. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. It's a strange word that, isn't it? Tested, God tested him. Um, We could write it another way. We could say God proved him. God proved what he was like. It's not as though God was saying, I wonder what he's going to be like. One of the things that we've absolutely seen in the story of Abraham already is that God knows precisely what is going to happen. So God isn't testing him to see what is going to happen. God is testing him to prove to himself and to us and to display before God God's intervention in his life so that he can do precisely the thing that he is about to do. God tests him in the sense that he says, I'm going to call you to do something, and at the same time, I am going to give you the grace and the ability to do it. It's one of the great things about believing and trusting in the God of the Bible. He never, never calls us to do something that we're not able to do. He might call us to do things that we don't think we're able to do, That's precisely what Abraham experiences at this point, but he gives him the grace to actually do it. What does he say to him? He says, right now, take your son, your only son, let me just, the words that God uses are carefully chosen. Take your son, your only son. Let me just reinforce, this is your only son. It has implications, which we're going to see in a minute, but if we've been following this story all along, what we know is that the whole of the story from the very first introduction about Abraham is that his wife Sarai at that point in time, who later becomes Sarah, is not able to have a child. The whole of the story is about how that comes about. And now they have one son, Isaac. He's been born. And God says, right now, I want you to take that son, and I want you to take him to the place that I tell you to go, the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. That is extraordinary, isn't it? 
It's extraordinary in lots of ways. Firstly, it would not necessarily be in the wider cultural sense, it might not necessarily be surprising that God, a, a God, was calling for human sacrifice. In the wider religions of the day, human sacrifice was not an unusual thing. But is the God of the Bible like that? Is God as He reveals Himself Is he a God who is demanding human sacrifice? Because at this point in time, it seems as though he is, because that's precisely what he says that Abraham is to do. Take your son, your only son, take him up onto the mountainside and sacrifice him there. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey with all of the equipment to sacrifice his son. One sentence. And behind that is a mass of emotion. The day before God has spoken to him, the following morning he gets up. He gets up and does precisely what God says. Whether it was hours, whether it was a small number of hours, whether it was all night, I'll tell you what, I know what it is to be a father. Some of you know what it is to be a father. All of us know what it is to have somebody really close who we love. And what God has said is now go and take him and kill him. Do you think he slept? Do you think he spent the night in restful sleep? Just looking forward to the next morning when he could make the trip that would take him to the mountain where God had said he would sacrifice his son? Or do you think his heart was tearing apart with emotional confusion and question and wonder? What is this all about? What is God calling me to do at this point in time? He took with him two of his servants, his son Isaac. They cut the wood, they loaded it up, and they made the journey. Three days it takes them to make that trip. Every night would have been a restful sleep. Forget it. It would have been a night of more and more thinking, wondering, questioning, challenging, weighing up, coming to terms with precisely what God has said. It's not as though God has said, right, in the morning, go and do this, and you've got five minutes to do it, and you haven't got time to dwell on it. Rather, you have got time to think about this. Have you been in that situation? Where you're in that situation, and you know that that God is taking you through something. You know that God is taking you through something. And it is not easy. And it is tough, and it is hard. And you're beginning to, well, where is God in this? I'll tell you where God is in it for Abraham. He is in exactly the place of making the decision that the place that he was to travel to would take three days. God made that decision. It's going to take three days. Therefore, I know that you are going to be going through this for that period of time. In a sense, that's a comfort, isn't it? It wasn't a mistake to God. It wasn't as though God suddenly decided, oh, I better work out where to send them. 
He's already worked it out. You are going to spend three days thinking and dwelling on this issue. Do you know what? When we're right in the middle of it, to know that God has set the time, appointed the time for this challenge, for this difficulty, is at times the only comfort. (laughs) Because the reality of the situation, we cannot necessarily answer at the time, can we? We're in the middle of it. But we need to know that the God who says, make a three-day trip, is the God who knows a three-day trip takes three days. That's great news. So they make the trip, and on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Right, stay here, he says to the servants. They take a hold of the donkey, and then they make the journey, just him and Isaac. He says to them, listen to this. This is an incredibly powerful statement that he makes here. He says, on a journey where he knows he's going to sacrifice his son, he says, we will worship. We're going to go and worship. And then we will come back to you. You see that? That is very important. We'll work out why that's important in a few minutes. But look what he says. We are going to worship. What's at the end of that journey is a dead son. What does he say after the worship? Then we will come back to you. That sounds logically ridiculous, doesn't it? How can that happen? We'll come back to it. But that's what he says. So he takes the wood, the burnt offering, and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the knife, fire and the knife, traveling across onto the Mount Moriah. A knife in one hand, fire in the other hand of the father, and the son carrying wood on his back. Isaac spoke to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? It's the most obvious question, isn't it? I know that it's obvious we're going to sacrifice. You've said that we're going to worship. I've got the wood. You've got the knife to kill, so that's the kind of offering that it's going to be. You've got fire for a sacrifice. We don't have anything to kill. We are in the wilderness. We are in the desert. What's happening? God will provide, son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Then they get to the place where God has called for them to be. Isaac is not a young boy. We read in the previous chapter that Abraham stays in Beersheba for a long time. Isaac is not a young boy at this time. He's probably a young man. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. (laughs) I remember when my boys were 
young enough to get a hold of and to pick up and to place them exactly where I wanted them to be. <laughs> that ain't going to happen anymore. <laughs> I'll tell you, that is not going to happen. If they don't want to go where I want them to go, they don't go. Uh, I wouldn't stand a chance of tying any of my boys up anymore. Those of you who know my boys, they're all bigger than me. It, would just not, it just would not happen. I could not tie one of my boys up and lay them on an altar. And yet that is exactly what does happen. Why? Because in some remarkable, amazing way, Isaac is willing to be bound and laid on the altar as well. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But he lays him on the altar. There is that, I mean, if you were making a movie of it, these next few seconds could be the climactic moment, couldn't they? You could, you could play the whole dramatic scene of the knife being raised. The dramatic camera shots between Isaac and the knife held up in the air as a father is about to strike dead his son. And then, just as the knife is... How close... How close does God take Abraham and Isaac to this moment in time? How close? To the point where they've tied the rope? Yes. To the point where he's laid on the altar? Yes. To the point where he's taken the knife in his hand? To the point where he's pulled it back for the final blow? Yes. To the final point. You cannot get any closer. The next is literally a millisecond away. And then it's the end. And it is at that point that God intervenes. Look at what happens. Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord, calls out from heaven. Stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me, your son, your only son. Stop at that moment. I don't know why. It's not recorded what Abraham does at that point in time. But I think if I was making the movie, I'd just allow the knife to drop from his hand at that point. And for all of the potential of death, towards his son to end at that moment. But you know, the reality is that death does not end there. It doesn't stop. Because God does stop the death of one and creates the opportunity for the death of another. Because out in the desert, away from anybody else away from any flocks, away from any potential for there to be anything around, there is a ram caught in a thicket right nearby. And God provides a sacrifice. Exactly what Abraham had said. Exactly what Abraham had said. God will provide the sacrifice, son. And they sacrifice the lamb instead of Isaac. You see that ha what happens there? The lamb dies and Isaac lives. 
the provided one dies, the one who God had made promises to lives. Isn't that amazing? Is that it? No, it's not it. Because I think we need to go just a little bit deeper because I want to ask two questions. I want to ask firstly, what would Abraham write in his autobiography? Secondly, I want to ask, is that where it ends? Is that the final masterpiece? What would Abraham write in his biography? Steve Jobs wrote in his biography, I know that it's possible that I will die and leave Lorraine with a half-built boat, but I've got to do it. I want to take that trip with Abraham for three days, and I want to stop him on day two, or maybe day three, and I want to say to him, Abraham, what are you writing in your diary tonight about what's about to happen? What are you saying? What's going in that book that I can learn from today? Because I want to know what's going on. Because right at the moment, Abraham, I am confused. I don't know what's going on. Because I didn't think the God of the Bible was the kind of God who would make you sacrifice your son. I didn't think he was that kind of God. He's always displayed himself as a kind gracious, compassionate, mercy-giving God. What is going on? I know what Abraham would say to me. I know what he would say. I've written in my diary tonight. And a little bit of it is revealed in what he says to the servants. He says, we are going to go and worship and we are coming back. That is a bold statement Abraham, because God has said that you're going to have to kill your son. How can you say that? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us how Abraham knew it. Stick with it, because if we can get, if you and I can get a grip on this, we will change the way we think about the issues that we are facing. Listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, by faith, Abraham when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He did what God said. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, let me explain that bit. What What the narrator in Hebrews is telling us, he's giving us a little insight. Here's the autobiography of Abraham. Chapter 11, uh, verse 17 to 19. He says this, Now, Abraham had embraced the promises of God. God had already, we've seen it in these past weeks, God has been promising, Isaac is going to be the one to be the hope for the future. And Abraham is saying, I believe it. I believe that. I believe I'm embracing that. God has said Isaac is going to be the one who is going to be the promise bearer. He, I've tried it my own way. We know that. But it's Isaac that God has made the promise to. I've embraced that, the writer in Hebrews Bruce says. Abraham reasoned that God 
could even raise the dead. So the first night, when God says, go and sacrifice your son, Abraham's saying, I can't sacrifice my son, but I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll do what God says. The second night, I don't know whether it worked out like this. I'm just painting a picture of how it works in his mind. The second night, he's traveling along and he's saying, but God has made these promises. God has made these promises. Isaac is the one who's going to deliver. It's all about the promise that God has made. What's God doing? If I kill him, how can the promise be fulfilled? What's God like? He's a promise-keeping God. And yet he said that I've got to kill him. How can that be true and that be true? How can I be the one who's going to kill my son and believe the promise that Isaac is going to be the one for the future? How can that work out? I don't know whether it came to him at three o'clock in the morning, lying on a desert pathway with a blanket wrapped around him when suddenly it's like, I've got it. I know how he can deliver the promise, and me kill my son. There's only one way. There's only one way. And that's that if I kill him, God is going to raise him. That is the most remarkable, balmy, illogical human perspective that you could ever imagine, isn't it? How can that be possible? But it's the only way. If I've got to kill him, and God is going to deliver the promise... There's only one way. And that's that he's got to raise him from the dead. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. He worked it out in his mind. Here's the deal. What are you working through? What are you really fighting through right at this point in time? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And are you facing the kind of stuff where you think, I, I can't see how God can possibly do what? Get me to heaven. Preserve me. Save me. Keep me. Because that's what it's all about. Ensuring that I get through this life as a living witness to Him, proclaiming eternal life as I journey through this existence. That's my life. How can I be sure that he's going to do it? Because right at the moment, what I'm facing is an impossibility. Abraham had exactly that issue. And the outcome was that he said, the only way is that they're both true. Because God's going to keep a hold of me. God is going to allow me to kill my son because he's going to raise him from the dead. Now, what does the Hebrew writer go on to say? And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. What does he mean? In a way, he did, the writer of Hebrews is saying, because it got so close, he was as good as dead, and yet he lived. Is that what it's all about? Is that the great masterpiece? Is that the masterpiece? That God's the kind of God who keeps us? No. No, it's way better than that. What's the, when I say masterpiece, what's the greatest masterpiece that comes to mind? Mona Lisa, I think, for many. Greatest masterpiece, some would argue. Did you know that the Mona Lisa 
on x-ray examination has got at least three Mona Lisas underneath in layers below previous paintings that are painted on top of and painted on top of and painted on top of until we finally have that perfect example of the Mona Lisa. That is what this chapter is all about. This is one of those previous paintings. It's one of the paintings that becomes covered over by another couple of paintings as time goes on, but finally there is the masterpiece. 1,800 years later, the masterpiece finally is painted. Do you know where? Do you know where that masterpiece is painted? Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where that masterpiece is painted. What happens? An only son, an only son carries wood on his back up a mountain. As his father carries a knife and the torch. We don't see his father. His father is in heaven, but it pleases the father to crush him. An only son goes up onto that very mountain, Mount Moriah. How do we know? Well, actually... 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Overlooking, in fact continuing on from the temple mount in Jerusalem, as the mountain continues we have Golgotha. Overlooking the temple mount, Mount Moriah. And Jesus climbs that mountain as what? The one and only Son. A Son in whom all of the promises are absolutely tied to. Every promise that God's made is tied to that Son, Jesus, just like Isaac. And he goes up to the top of that mountain. And then does he try to escape? Does he try to run away? You think, well, no, he, he couldn't have. He couldn't have because he's surrounded by Roman soldiers, unlike Isaac, who was a big strapping guy who, against his old father Abraham, he could have got away any time. Forget it. Jesus makes it clear, I could have called down legions of angels that could preserve me at any moment in time. Could he have walked away from Calvary? Absolutely, at any moment. And yet, what does he do? He lies down on a cross and he allows Roman soldiers to nail his hands to that wooden cross. And what is it behind the scenes? It is the Father who is raising a knife and at this point in time to ideas collide because a son dies and a lamb dies. God provides a lamb for Abraham, doesn't he? A sacrifice. 
a sacrifice for Abraham on Mount Moriah, which for the next 1800 years becomes the pattern of God's people, sacrificing in the temple on Mount Moriah, lambs sacrificed as an atonement for sin. And 1800 years later, Jesus becomes that very lamb. Jesus becomes that very lamb who God provides. Those two ideas tie together at the very last moment as Jesus dies. The temple and Jesus. 1,800 years, well, hundreds of years because it it took some time for the temple to actually be built on Moriah. But for hundreds of years, God's people have been sacrificing on Mount Moriah. And as Jesus above the temple dies, we read this. When Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The lamb sacrifices has ended because the sacrifice is finally made. You see what's happened? This is a portrait. Genesis chapter 22 is like Leonardo da Vinci's practices. It's like the layers below that say, are you ready? Do you know, I, would Im- I don't know how many people saw those paintings on the Mona Lisa plate before the final thing. How many people came through the studio and saw little bits? We've got the privilege of being able to see with x-ray vision all of the pictures and portrayals that God has placed in this world for us to see. And yet only some would have seen Leonardo da Vinci's pictures. Oh, yeah, that's, that, that's looking good, Leonardo. Yeah, but there's more to come. I can do it better than that. I can do it way better than that. That's just, and then it gets a bit better. I can do it better than that. I can do it better than that. that. Even that isn't good enough. But look at it, Leonardo. Look at the way you've created that beautiful scene with those eyes. Look at those eyes, Leonardo. I can do it better than that. And we say, God, what are you doing? He says, I can do it better than that. I can do better than a sacrifice of lambs. I can do better than that because what you need is way more than a sacrifice of a lamb. You need a sacrifice that means that you never, ever need to die. Even though you will. And the final portrait, the one that is preserved, the one that hangs figuratively speaking, in the Louvre Gallery of the Christian Church for all of time is the one that we see in the Gospel. On exactly the same mountain where Jesus Himself becomes the sacrifice. Why? Does God demand sacrifice? No and yes. No. God will never, never demand sacrifice by any human being other than His own Son. Because no other sacrifice of any human being is ever going to be good enough. And yet the wages of sin is death. Oh, oh, the reality is that it is so serious 
our transgression against God, that death is the answer. Oh, yeah, God doesn't pull any punches in making us clear and understanding that. But then he says, but I will provide the perfect death so that you might live. Do you know what? Abraham, I say thank you. Because your masterpiece in chapter 22 is the most, most breathtaking masterpiece that prepares me for something even more amazing. I'm glad that, figuratively speaking, you've written down in your autobiography that you'd worked it out. You knew that the only way is that God would raise him from the dead. Did he say that by accident? No, of course not. Because that's exactly what God does. He raises the final masterpiece from the dead, doesn't he? Jesus would be forgotten. He would be a nothing, dispatched dispatched to the dusty past of history and forgotten by everybody if it had not been for the fact that were those who bore eyewitness to the reality of his resurrection, he raised him from the dead. And he says to you and to me today, because I've raised him from the dead, you can stand in his death and his life. He can be your lamb's sacrifice. Abraham knew he needed a sacrifice to approach God. He couldn't go and worship without a sacrifice. Nothing's changed. In 3,800 years, nothing has changed. We still need a sacrifice to come and to worship God. And God provides the sacrifice. It's His Son who says, now come to the mountain. Come and worship me. Because the sacrifice has been paid. That is why all our hope, all our hope is in Jesus nowhere else that we can go. But if he raised him from the dead, isn't he going to deliver his promises to you and to me?